Good morning. This morning we'll be reading from Isaiah, um, Isaiah chapter 11, starting at the first verse. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod from his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither destroy, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. He will raise a banner for the nations, And gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish and Judah's enemies will be destroyed. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile toward Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people to the east. They will subdue Edom and Moab and the Ammonites will be subject to them. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. With a scorching wind, he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that anyone can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria, as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. Good morning, my name is Stephen, one of the ministers here. A few years ago, I, I mentioned that no matter what I do, I can't seem to um, grow citrus trees. I mentioned it to you here. I can handle every other tree just fine. So in my backyard, there's a cherry tree, an apricot tree, pear, plum, mulberry, peach, fig, blueberry, pomegranate, and even a Chinese quince that I, I got for Christmas this year. It's like a, a zoo for trees in my backyard. But I just can't grow citrus. And so I mentioned that here, and after I mentioned it, I got all sorts of helpful advice from you guys, some of it unmentionable. (laughs) But still, no matter what I do, 
I just slowly kill citrus. And what makes it worse is that my neighbours on both sides have absolutely no problems growing lemons whatsoever. I've actually got a photo of a, a lemon tree that I bought for Kathy five years ago as a Christmas present, and you can see how it's going just here. Now, I know it's in a terrible location before I get that advice from you as well, surrounded by other plants, but it's, it's being punished, okay? Because I'm going through the stages of fruit tree grief. Do you know about this? Okay, first there's denial. It'll, it's going to grow fruit. It's coming. Next year, it'll grow fruit. It's, it's, it's okay. Then there's the phase where you blame yourself. Maybe I'm not loving it enough, watering it enough, fertilizing it enough. Then there's just plain angry, and that's the phase I'm in right now, as you can tell. It's being punished until finally you come into the phase of acceptance where you pay $2 a lemon at Coles. <laughs> now, last Sunday and today, as, as um, Coop said before, we're looking at Christmas through the eyes of Isaiah, this ancient prophet. And Isaiah's message to God's people 700 years, 700 years before Jesus was even born was that they were like a fruit tree that wasn't producing fruit. And actually the message was that God was about to cut them down using the nation of Assyria as his axe. Now that doesn't sound very Christmassy, does it? A message like that. I think our hope on Christmas Day is just to put aside all the negativities of life and all the negativities of of our world just for a day. Our hope is to be able to not worry about the problems for a day and just take the time to enjoy and appreciate the things that we do have. But Isaiah, he has a very different perspective of Christmas and the whole Bible does actually. Christmas in the Bible is not about ignoring the bad and just focusing on the good just for a day. Christmas is about focusing on God's eternal solution to what's wrong in our world and what's wrong in our lives. Christmas is about focusing on the future good, the future good that's coming because of what God has done. If we're going to feel the the real joy of Christmas that we sing about in the carols, then we have to feel something of the weight of the problems that Christmas fixes. Through Isaiah, God said to his people that the problem for them, their problem, is that the axe is swinging. God has been patient with his people for hundreds and hundreds of years. But like, like a, a fruit tree, a bad fruit tree, they just have never produced the fruit that he desired. And it's actually not that they've produced no fruit. It's more like they've pr- produced toxic fruit. They've exploited the poor. Their leaders are all corrupt, violent. And everyone else is following suit. And even though God had saved his people out of slavery to Egypt and protected them over the years, still they just ignored him and worshipped other gods, lived for other things. He'd sent them other prophets like Isaiah before him, prophet after prophet, and they ignored them too, killed some of them. And these people, some of them even offered their own children as sacrifices to their alternative gods. And so God, he's reached that point where he says, enough is enough. This is Isaiah's message in 10 verse 33. See, the Lord, the Lord Almighty will lop off the bows with great power, bows with great power. The lofty trees will be felled. The tall ones will be brought low. They're about to experience God's anger. 
he was sending an empire called Assyria to, to cut them down like a tree. But with God, his final word is never anger. And that's exactly what we see in Isaiah chapter 11, which was just read before by Darren. Have a look again at verse 1. His final word is not anger. He says in 11 verse 1, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. God is saying to them, a king was coming who would bear fruit. God's anger is not God's only word. It's not his last word. Mercy is. Mercy to see humanity flourish and finally achieve its purpose and bear the fruit that he wants. God says to them, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Now Jesse, he was King David's father. So God's saying here that he's going to bring a king from David's dynasty that would be different to the rest. This, this line of kings, David's dynasty. They were supposed to shepherd God's people by leading them into what was right. But instead, this dynasty was, was a failure, that they were corrupt most of the time, greedy, proud, and they actually led the people more away from God than they did toward him. But God here is saying that out of the ruins of this dynasty, out of the ashes of this line of king, from this stump, something small and fragile is going to shoot up. Not, not strong and proud, not, a, not a, a tree, but just a shoot and from this new growth, this, this new king, finally God would have the fruit that he desires from his people. And we see why this king is going to be different in verse 2. Isaiah says, The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. Isaiah is saying that a king was coming who would be led by the Spirit of God himself. This king will be different because God's own Spirit will rest on him, so he'll have wisdom, he'll have understanding, unlike other leaders, and counsel, and might. And he'll know the Lord, unlike any other king before him or after him. And he'll fear the Lord like no one before him or after him. So much so... That in verse 3 it says, he'll delight in the fear of the Lord. Fear here isn't, isn't a negative thing. This isn't a fear of God that's like a cowering fear. This is a confident fear. Later on, Isaiah even goes as far as to say, the fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. The people in Isaiah's day were experts at not fearing God. Experts at doing whatever they want because they didn't fear God. They made the mistake of thinking God would never use an axe against them. Or they made the mistake of thinking, well, God's axe is not something to fear. It's not that scary. But that's actually not that different to our world 2,700 years later, is it? But here, God says he's going to raise up a king who would be different to all other people and leaders. A king who delights in the fear of the Lord. A king who loves to recognize God and his authority. And look at the difference that makes in verse 3. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he'll judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Unlike 
other kings and other leaders. He's not ignorant. He's not subjective. He's not prejudiced. He'll deliver justice for all people. And he's not arrogant either. But at the same time, he's not weak. Look at verse 4. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he'll slay the wicked. This king, his power doesn't lie in armies. It's not in the sword, but it's in his words. And this is saying much more than the, the pen is mightier than the sword. The kind of power that is pictured here in this king goes beyond both the pen and the sword. This is the, the power to speak and to bring things into being. This is power like God used to create the world. Power that only God can wield. And if it was in the hands of our leaders today, it would be terrifying. But look at what this king will do with this power. Look at what his power achieves in verse 6. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. And the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. Isaiah is saying a king was coming who would bring about an unearthly peace. Just this week, we went to a, a shop that um, sells fish, but it, it sold all these other really interesting things as well, including snakes in glass cages. Now, these were horrible, pale, pasty things hanging off branches in the glass cages there. And, be, and be, for between $400 and $1,500, you could get yourself a disgusting snake to have as a pet. Now, as I looked at them there, everything within me just wanted to smash the glass and club them to death, or at least spray some fly spray in there or something. The idea of putting my hand in there and kind of cuddling up to one of these snakes as, as a, a pet to me was repulsive, and these weren't even poisonous snakes. This idea here in Isaiah of a baby playing with a poisonous snake's nest, it's such a powerful image because everything within us recoils from it it's just so unnatural but the power of this king is that his rule will be so effective that this world will experience peace like our minds can't even begin to comprehend or accept this world will go back to the harmony of the garden of eden that it was always supposed to have this king will bring people back into harmony with their god back into harmony with each other, nations, peoples everywhere, back into harmony with the world itself. And look at verse 9 where we see this kind of harmony. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Not only will this king himself know God and fear God, but through his reign... All people everywhere will be saturated in the knowledge of God. All creation will know what it means to be at peace with their God. And finally, all creation will come to where it was always meant to be. That's the kind of king that God told them was coming. A king who would bear the kind of fruit that God had been longing for. 
A king who would lead by the Spirit of God. A king who would bring an unearthly peace. And Isaiah tells us he won't be simply a human king. He'll be Emmanuel, God with us. God come down as a human in order to be the king that we need. Even though Isaiah wrote this 700 years before Jesus was even born, it's, it's obvious that this is Jesus that he is talking about here. God showed Isaiah that his, his last word really wouldn't be anger. His last word would be Jesus. His mercy to this world would be the coming of Jesus to rule this world. 700 years before it happened, Isaiah saw it and he rejoiced at the coming of Jesus because he saw that Jesus would bring an end to all of the evils of this world. Not like a band-aid fix, but an eternal solution. And when we share that, the same understanding of Christmas that Isaiah had, we also can share the same joy that he had. At Christmas, we could just put our problems aside for a day, if we're fortunate enough to be in a position to do that. But in Jesus, we can do far more than that. In Jesus, we see the way that our problems will one day be put aside forever, not by us, but by him. In Jesus, we have opened to us a reason for joy that's far greater than trying to go to a happy place for a day. Jesus offers us a kind of peace that you just won't find anywhere else in this world. I don't know if you can remember back to this time last year. At this time last year, I reckon many of us were pretty optimistic about 2021. 2021 was going to be the year where vaccines would be rolled out and we could all just get back to normal. But unfortunately, it just hasn't proved to be that easy. And even looking at this year to come, it's not looking as easy as I hoped it would be. It's the case every year. Every year presents new joys, but it also presents new pains and new sorrows. No year, no year will be the year when all of our pains and sorrows just go away. It's just not going to happen. Sadly, our problems march through the years with us. We can't get rid of them that easily. But what we can't do, Jesus will accomplish for us in his time. He was born to put all things right. That's what Christmas is all about. That's what Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection and his rule are all about. That's what his return is all about. One day we will see him put everything everything right in our world in our lives we don't ignore what's wrong with this world for a day instead today and and actually every day we rejoice in God's solution we rejoice in the future that's coming you know the inconvenient and uncomfortable truth that Isaiah shows to us is that without Jesus God's axe is raised over us as well We've contributed to the mess of this world as well. We haven't produced the fruit that God was looking for as well. But God's last word to you is not anger. His last word to you is Jesus. Anyone who comes under Jesus' rule is like a a branch grafted into a tree that is actually going to bear fruit. Anyone can be grafted in like that. 
when's the best time to do that? When's the best time to recognize that we're never going to produce the fruit that God desires on our own or even the fruit that we desire really? When's the best time to admit that Jesus really is the king that we need, the future of this world? Well, it's like what people say about planting a tree. The best time is 30 years ago and the second best time is right now. So let me say to you, if you've never looked into Jesus, never listened to him, what he says with his own words, the second best time to do that is right now. To actually read one of the biographies of his life where you get to see Jesus and hear his own words and see if he really is the solution to every problem in this world. If you're a regular here and you want to do that, I'd love to do that with you. If you're just visiting, then I'm sure somebody who invited you along today would love to do that with you. Just say that you'd like to read one of the biographies of Jesus' life and I'm sure they would be happy to help you. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the deep joy of Christmas, that as we feel the weight of the problems of this world and in our own lives and don't turn a blind eye to them, that we see all the greater the joy and the wonder and the glory of Jesus That he is a king like no other, a king that we need. A king who will right every wrong in our own lives and in the life and future of this world. Lord, we long for that day. In the meantime, today, help us to celebrate just how wonderful it is to be a part of your plan for the future. And Lord, for those who don't know this plan, don't know Jesus, Lord, give them the courage to investigate him for themselves, to see if he really does have what he claims to have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.